Welcome to the Talk to Your Pharmacist podcast. We're dispensing stories of success from across the continuum of care. I'm your host, Hillary Blackburn. Thanks for joining us to learn from leaders throughout the pharmacy industry. This podcast is sponsored by TheraWorks Relief. Many of you get sore, achy legs from standing all day or get asked about painful foot and leg cramps. If so, you're going to want to hear about TheraWorks Relief, a clinically proven topical foam that prevents and relieves muscle cramps and soreness. Learn more at theraworksrelief.com. Hi, everyone. This episode varies a bit from our traditional style of interviewing a guest, but I wanted to share about an interesting conference held in Nashville every year, the Health Further Festival. Uh, It was held just a few weeks ago in August of 2018, and it is some of the, the best, brightest leaders in healthcare from clinicians, investors, executive to entrepreneurs are all in attendance. Uh, it's an annual gathering of people who believe we can make healthcare better together. Some of the keynote speakers included the CEO of HCA, the editor-in-chief of Livestrong.com, the VP of Health and Wellness Transformation at Walmart. People from all over the country traveled in to the hub of healthcare in the U.S. and I would arguably say the world to have some lively discussions about what is new and what's innovative happening in the healthcare arena. So I was actually lucky enough to be one of the panelists on one of the most popularly attended sessions, which was titled Debating Medical Cannabis. Here's the session. Um, We've got a conversation now about medical cannabis. I know many of you are up to speed with what's being discussed in the news, um, online, you know, pros and cons. And so today we've brought together a couple of experts who know the data inside and out. So we're going to have an excellent conversation about um, what that might look like. So welcome to the stage, Holly Fletcher, Dr. Michael Barron, and Hillary Blackburn. Hi, welcome to welcome to debating medical can, can, uh, medical cannabis. I am Holly Fletcher. I'm a journalist here in Nashville. Uh, I spent three years at the Tennessean covering health um, covering healthcare, and I recently launched something that I'm calling a journalism experiment. It is called it is called Bird Dog, and it's covering healthcare economy and tech. Um, I'm, we, we are going to be doing less of a debate and more of a setting the stage about something that I'm taking a wild guess you, d- you hear lots about, but you don't know that much about. Um, I learned from our guests that um, 30 states have, have approved medical, can- med- uh, med- medical marijuana, and nine states have it for recreational use. That is a lot more than I thought it was, and I don't know uh, what else you're going to learn. But to start, let's hear from our panelists or our speakers about who they are and why this is of interest. Yeah, hi, thanks, Holly. So Hillary Blackburn, I'm the founder of the Natural Products Resource Center, and we were created to be the source of research-based information for medical cannabis particularly for pharmacists and other healthcare professionals. Uh, So I'm a clinically trained pharmacist and have been practicing for the past seven years. And 
just as Holly mentioned, as we've started to notice that over 30 states across the country have approved medical cannabis, and it's really taken the medical community by surprise, uh, we, we really recognize that there is a need for training in this space. And that is why we saw that need and have partnered with the nation's only federally funded cannabis research institute to provide that content for our education and clinical certification to protect pharmacists. Great. And um, good afternoon. My name is Mike Barron. Um, thank you very much for inviting me. Lisa, this is getting feedback. Sorry. I'm a medical doctor, a physician. I'm in the clinics in the trenches of healthcare. Um, I'm a trained anesthesiologist and psychiatrist. Um, probably most important to this, I'm also a recovering addict with um, 19 years of sobriety. I was appointed by Governor Bredesen to the Board of Medical Examiners um, eight years ago and reappointed by Governor Hathlam. I chaired the Controlled Substance Monitoring Database or the Prescription Monitoring program for the state for three years. I've been in the trenches of healthcare, treating people with mental illness, and especially uh, substance use disorders. Um, most recently, I resigned from those positions and have run the, um, the medical uh, director for the state's physician health program. Uh, we treat physicians with substance use disorders, behavioral disorders, boundary distress, disruptive disorders. Um, I, um, last time I spoke about medical marijuana was uh, at Legislative Plaza and um, I was heckled by the audience, so I'm a little bit nervous about this one, <laughs> uh, but um, I'm, I'm willing to participate. Why is it they heckled? Why was I heckled? Yeah. Because I'm uh, not pro-medical marijuana. Because you're not pro. Okay. Well. For lots uh, of reasons, which I'm sure we'll get into. Um, so, to, um, so to start, a little bit about why I was skeptical at being asked to moderate this panel. Um, as a journalist, I get a lot of pitches from press people who think they have the best story idea in the world, and I hate to break it to you, that's not typically the case. Uh, but, for the, but, but for the medical marijuana groups, I was finding that the pitches are, were largely com coming from people who I'm going to politely describe as whack jobs. And there wasn't a whole lot of research. And I couldn't figure out how I was supposed to, as a journalist who was really focused on facts and numbers and just really getting into the nerdy stuff, how I was supposed to do that when I wasn't finding a whole lot of research. And part of that is because of the way the Fed is, is is because of the way the federal government thinks about marijuana and how, and how it's stratified at the federal level versus the state levels. So right now you have this point of contention where it is legalized at several state levels, but it's not recognized by the feds. So I was hoping for Hillary, for you to jump in and talk a little bit about that. And then for Michael, if you could chime in about what that dearth of research means to both of your to both of your professions sure so the political landscape is 
constantly evolving. So as I mentioned, over 30 states have approved medical cannabis. Nine states have recreational laws. And almost all 50 states have some type of CBD. Uh, Tennessee is one where we have not legalized medical cannabis, but CBD you probably have seen is popping up in what uh, is CBD? Let's CBD, for uh, yes, for cannabidiol. So if you think of cannabis, there are two primary uh, cannabinoids that are most popular. So you've probably all heard of THC, uh, and that's the psychoactive uh, component that gets you that euphoric feeling. And you've got CBD, which is cannabidiol, which has more of uh, the non-psychoactive properties. So that's why people are using that uh, for a little bit more commonly. Um, but uh, so, there, so it continues to evolve and, uh, and it's still illegal at the federal level. It was uh, moved to a controlled substance and it's actually a schedule one, which means there is no clinical evidence and a high potential for abuse. So there are five different controlled substance categories, uh, Schedule 2, 3, 4, and 5. Uh, if any of you have ever gotten a prescription at the pharmacy, sometimes, uh, specifically if you've ever had a prescription for maybe a, a uh, controlled pain substance, you don't get any refills because it's a more likely uh, to be abused medication. Um, and so, uh, because it is Schedule One, it is not available in pharmacies. It is only available in dispensaries. And at a dispensary, there is no clinical oversight. So it is dispensed by a bud tender. So it's basically like going to a liquor store and you have someone that just helps you pick out uh, a certain tincture or oil or lozenge or whatever type of um, ingredient there might be. And because uh, it's not a federally legal product, there aren't any good manufacturing practices around it. So for instance, right here in Tennessee, there was a woman who did her research, knew that CBD was legal, uh, in the state of Tennessee and did her due diligence to research getting some CBD to help with her anxiety because she couldn't afford her regular medications and she didn't want all the side effects. Uh, so she started taking CBD and that populated as a positive result on her drug test. And because she is a state employee, she actually lost her job because she failed that drug test. So uh, because it is just such an evolving thing, uh, we really feel um, the importance of educating not only the healthcare professionals, but also the patients about what those implications might be from a legal standpoint. Great, um, we are here. Um, this is a very emotional uh, subject. Um, and the reason that it's um, now legal as medical marijuana in 30 states, actually 29 states and the um, District of Columbia, is that there's a lot of money behind it. Not a lot of research, not a lot of scientific evidence or medical evidence, but a lot of money. You're having politicians that are actually poorly trained in the medical arena 
initiating local and um, state level initiatives to get medical marijuana approved because it increases revenue to the state. There's a lot of lobbyist money behind this to get this approved. Marijuana is a plant. There's 400, over 480 chemicals in this plant. There's over 90 chemicals that are unique to the marijuana plant itself that are, and only two are the THCs, the rest are in the um, CBD group. We don't know what they do. We don't know what half of those chemicals do. We, it's impossible to prescribe a plant as a, a, a medicine. We don't prescribe opium. Um, we don't prescribe heroin, yet they have good medicinal value, but there's a huge abuse potential behind it. This is purely an um, initiative by um, you know, groups out there with a lot of resources, financial resources, that are driving this issue. And it's an emotional issue. It absolutely is an emotional issue. We could tell by the number of individuals in this room what's going on with this. But we have this thing called the FDA, Food and Drug Administration, that actually may not be a perfect institution. Actually, it's far from perfect. But yet, it's what we have in this country to approve medications. Politicians are doing an end around the FDA to get medical marijuana uh, approved for medicinal use. Why? We're having politicians you know, make or legislate medical care which is really very dangerous. And it's going to come to Tennessee. It absolutely will sooner or later. So I'm glad that we're actually here to discuss this. But we're really um, having the um, cart drive the horse here because we don't have the research to know what this stuff does. Most of these 90 CBD products um, we, don't, we don't know what they do. Some might be very helpful, might have great medicinal properties, might have side effects. We don't know because the evidence isn't there because the research isn't being done. We're approving a product that we don't know much about. And that's, to me, very, very dangerous. I'll get off that soapbox now. In terms of, um, in terms of the research, it's my understanding that most, that most of it is coming out of Canada and Israel. Um, how do studies like that stand up to um, U.S. Uh, to U.S. Scrut um, scru um, scrutiny? Are they, are, they, are they considered pretty legitimate? Or from your perspectives, would you want to see more research come out of U.S. institutions? Hillary? Yeah, certainly. So the reason why Israel and Canada have been some of the thought leaders is because they've legalized uh, medical cannabis in their country. So there are so many hoops to go through in the United States because cannabis is still Schedule One. So as I mentioned, there is only one federally funded university in the entire country that actually grows marijuana for research. So. When any type of university is trying to, or any other type of body is trying to, to provide research, they first have to get a DA, DEA approval. Then they have to write their protocol to have that strain, whether it percentage of THC and CBD, that is what has been grown. 
and it has to be approved by the RRB. So there's so many different check marks. And so what if the protocol that they wrote doesn't have the exact uh, chemical components that is being grown at that time? Well, do they have to wait or? Uh, so there, there are just a lot of hoops to go through and that's why we see a real lack of uh, randomized clinical controlled trials, which is the gold standard. So there are some studies available. It's mostly anecdotal uh, in nature, mostly observational. Um, and so with any clinical trial, uh, you know, we look at, you know, what is the patient population? So, um, you know, are the U.S. population, how does that, how, what are the similarities to Canadians or to the Israeli population. And so to be able to extrapolate that patient population, um, that's something that weighs into how your, uh, the rigor of the trial and how that would apply to your patient base. Um, so certainly I think that, you know, if there was some way to have a provisional rescheduling for cannabis for research purposes, uh, so that we're not relying on anecdotal information uh, that would certainly be helpful so that we've got um, some real data to show is this helpful, helpful for all of these different conditions that it's being touted and claimed for. Absolutely agree. Um, there's nothing wrong with the Israeli studies or from those north of the border. We, we just do not have enough research anywhere in the world to, to understand what's going on in this plant with, with uh, all the um, um, CBDs that are in this plant, well, we don't know. So we're um, legalized, we're medicalizing mm -hmm. a, a, a plant that has a high abuse potential, a high recreational use potential that um, adolescents, and it's the number two reason that adolescents are entering treatment centers is because of, of marijuana, and we don't know enough about it. And um, you know, part of that is because the federal government is you know, very leery to, um, to you know, have NIMH, NIH, National Institutes of Health, mm -hmm. National Institutes of Mental Health do use um, federal grant money for this, and there's not enough control. The, the marijuana that's available these days is um, not the same marijuana that was available when, when I was a kid. Well, when I was, you know, 18, 19, 20, uh, that was about 3% uh, strong um, with the active ingredient. Um, now it's in the 20% range. But is, that, but is that what you're buying on the street or is that what you're buying in a dispensary? At dispensaries. Okay. That's what's available and on the street. Yeah, I'll just also add, so the very first uh, cannabis-derived uh, drug that was FDA-approved happened this June. So in June, Epidiolex was the very first uh, drug that has been approved by the FDA that was derived from the cannabis plant. So there have been two other medications that have been approved. So if any of you are familiar with the oncology space, you've probably heard of Marinol. So it's used to help with nausea, vomiting, um, other properties, and then you've also got another medication, Cezumet. Uh, and so there have been some approvals of cannabis-related products. So those two were synthetically derived. This Epidiolex is the very first one that was derived from a cannabis plant, and that was created by GW Pharmaceuticals out of the UK. Um, 
it's I mean, it strikes me from an observer's perspective that oh, um, medical marijuana and uh, prescription painkillers are in similar situations in that um, professional schools don't spend a lot of time on them. Um, I was speaking with an anesthesiologist who works at a medical school here in the state probably 18 months ago, and he was saying that he had been brought in because the medical students at that school received the entirety of their painkiller knowledge in one lecture in one day. And how do you adequately learn about painkillers and the potentials from one lecture? And it strikes me that medical marijuana is the same for pharmacists right now who are finding themselves, they're in the workforce, they're being pharmacists. Some states have laws where they have to provide consultation to patients, but yet they can't sell it. So you go to your friendly Walgreens or your CVS, and you may have to talk to them about it, but they can't sell it. So could you talk a little bit about about what it's like to be a pharmacist in this changing environment? I mean, is it just kind of like an oh crap moment? What do I know about this? And what do I do about it? Yeah, so 70% of the 308,000 pharmacists are practicing in a cannabis legal state. Uh, and so you're exactly right. There's not a lot of training that we do in pharmacy school because it is an illegal substance. Same probably with medical school. Um, and so you may have one lecture on drugs of abuse, uh, which is what marijuana or cannabis would be classified as. And so uh, I have several colleagues who work in cannabis legalized states who work at Walgreens or Kroger or CVS and they're across the street from a dispensary. So they have their patients who are going into the dispensary and then walking across the street and asking their most accessible healthcare professional, which is a pharmacist, how do I take this medication and how does it interact with the other 10 medications that I'm taking? And so they're, they're faced with this real uh, struggle where are they going to have to provide information about how cannabis interacts with some of their other medications and potentially put them in a liable situation? Or do they have to turn them away and lose that patient's trust and uh, their business and tell them to have to go to the internet to look it up? And uh, um, the question wasn't really for me, but I, I can um, really expound on it. Um, I'm associated with a local medical school here in Nashville since this is home for me. And um, when I went through medical school, I didn't get any lectures about substance use disorders at all. Um, now, at a local medical school, they get, get about three hours of lectures about substance use disorders. Uh, how we got into this mess with the opioids, again, was uh, greed and a poor um, understanding of opioids and a lot of, um, of pharmaceutical representatives um, spewing misinformation. And we're really seeing the same about medical marijuana. There's just not good, solid, concrete, evidence-based um, knowledge about um, medical marijuana. Uh, again, it's a medicalization of a, uh, of, of a of weed. Um, Do you think that you would potentially change, change your stance on 
its use as a medicine if there was research? Or do you think from your experience you would just be blanket opposed? Uh, I, I think there's some very useful compounds within this plant, mm -hmm. but as a whole plant with THC in there at 20, 25% that gets people high, has a euphoric effect. We're not sure what other types of effects. No, I, I can't say that would be useful. I think some of the other compounds in it can be useful to treat infantile epilepsy, may help with chronic pain. But as a plant, first of all, anyone that says go smoke a plant should you know, hand in their, their license to practice medicine because it has the same ingredients that nicotine plants have that are harmful. There are carcinogens in the plant. So to say go smoke a joint is ludicrous because it can cause you know, end-stage COPD, uh, lung cancer, the same thing. So there are edible products and other things like that that might be. But again, the products, the 90 or so CBDs that are in the cannabis sativa plant, we don't know about. And that's where we need to do the research first. Yeah, yeah I'll add to that. So I do agree with the, the smoking. There has been re some evidence coming out about smoking is going to be bad for you, whether it's nicotine or whether it's marijuana. Um, but uh, getting back to some of the history of cannabis, so cannabis has actually been around since the Chinese emperor's time. So it's been used medically for the past 2,000 years. Uh, so back in the 1600s when our early ancestors were settling the Americas, it was, it was grown as hemp, as one of the main crops. Uh, so I think even some of the, the presidents even grew, Thomas Jefferson uh, in Washington. And so it was actually even used and in the USP Pharmacopeia until 1942. So about that time, uh, if, you, if anybody's ever watched Reefer Madness, I don't know if it's an older film. It's a but, good movie. <laughs> but that came out because um, there was you know, some FBI agents that realized, oh, if I paint marijuana in this bad light, I'll have increased revenue to my department. And so that kind of led to the reefer madness. And so, uh, you know, it's, it's been around for a long time. Uh, it's been used medically for a long time. There is a lack of clinical trials. Uh, I think there's a lot more that we can do to, to study that. Uh, so, you know, when I was in pharmacy school, we learned about the cardiovascular system, respiratory system you know, the neurological system, but we didn't learn about the endocannabinoid system. Uh, but there are uh, cannabinoid receptors all over our body and are actually responsible for creating homeostasis. And so I think that there is just so much education that lacks in that space. And uh, they are finally starting to identify some of those receptors as having some benefits and um, as was mentioned, there's over a hundred different cannabinoids in a plant, and every one of them has different use. And sometimes uh, there is benefit to having two of the cannabinoids together to balance out those effects. I am going to go out on a limb and take one for the team here and ask a really dumb question. Medical marijuana that you get from a dispensary, 
Is it a pill? Do you eat it? Do you smoke it? What does it look like? I got no idea. Well, I was actually in Denver like this past weekend <laughs> for a National Pharmacy Association and did some research, not trying anything, but <laughs> I, I wouldn't do that because I am too hardcore about my pharmacist license. Uh, but it was fascinating to, it, to go into a dispensary. It was open from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. in downtown Denver, and I was probably the only person in there that had my phone out taking pictures. And it was like going into an Apple store. So you go in, you had to be 21, there was a security guard there, and it's a primarily cash-based uh, business. And they have edibles, which could be cookies. They, they've branded it like Godiva chocolate. There are truffles, there are tinctures, there are oils, there are dabs. There are all kinds of things that are available for you to try. And you've got your bud tender there who can advise you on what to get. Now they do have, at the one that, that we visited to explore, they had iPads there that um, gave the very uh, official scientific information I'm being facetious um, <laughs> about, you know, what was a past Sorry. user experience, what were some of the side effects and things. So um, they even had some samples so people could smell it and, you know, see what percentage of THC and CBD was in there. So it really is fascinating to see the, the gamut of products that are available. And that just hits home with that point that there's no good manufacturing practice out there, so you really don't know what's in the product that you're buying unless you send it to the lab to test it. You, uh, we have about 40 seconds left, so a quick question. Even in states where it is, um, where it is either medically approved or for recreational, can physicians and pharmacists lose a, lose a, lose a license for using it? Has that changed? Um, in, well, and I could speak with... Um with physicians that are in a physician health program, if they're being monitored and they um, and their urine drug screen shows up for THC or CBDs, yes, they could lose their license. Even in states where it's absolutely because it is a safety-sensitive um, field. So, do you want your airline pilot stoned before he gets on an airplane, or, or your neurosurgeon, or your doctor? So, as long as it's a safety-sensitive field and they're being monitored, or there's a action, yeah, they could lose their license or be referred to a program like, like mine. Is it the same performances? Right, and companies are having to rewrite their policies and procedures to, to handle this, so it's, it's definitely up to the employer and, you know, the state boards of pharmacy. They probably, if they had that on a urine drug screen, you, you could have the potential for losing your license or some other type of reprimand could be And if you enjoyed this episode, be sure to check out the show notes at www.pharmacyadvisory.com and be sure to check out www.npr.center to hear what is happening over at the Natural Products Resource Center. And again, back to our sponsor, TheraWorks Relief. 
It absorbs quickly, isn't greasy, and has a light green apple scent. It doesn't contain menthol or have a strong smell. If you want to learn more about how this might help with muscle relief, check out the free CE credits through Pharmacy Times. Thanks for listening to this episode of Talk to Your Pharmacist, produced by the Pharmacy Advisory Group. If you liked this episode, let us know by subscribing to the podcast, rating, and reviewing it. Share it with friends. And if you want to be a guest or know a pharmacist leader who has a great story to tell, connect with me, Hillary Blackburn, on LinkedIn and check out our Facebook page, Pharmacy Advisory Group, for updates on new podcasts. Thanks for listening.